Good morning. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Joshua, the 10th chapter, and uh, hopefully the Lord will bless us this morning to see a few things uh, out of Joshua, the 10th chapter. I think this is a message of uh, great encouragement. Uh, I know it has been to me as I've studied it and thought about it. And before I get too deep into the scriptures here, um, for anybody that's ever, you know, spent much time in the Bible, reading through the Old Testament, or even if as a child, if you were read uh, Bible storybooks, you're probably very familiar with some of the basic uh, accounts uh, in the Old Testament and the travels and the um, uh, events that the children of Israel experienced. We know that uh, the children of Israel spent a great deal of time uh, as slaves in Egypt. And we also know that um, long before then, God had promised Abraham that he would uh, take his people, the Israelites, and he would put them in a land uh, flowing with milk and honey. We know that is the promised land because he promised that land to Abraham. And from the time he promised that land to Abraham, many years go by and the children of Israel find themselves enslaved uh, in Egypt. And they probably wondered, like we would all wonder, like this doesn't sound like the promise that God promised our father Abraham. Uh, this looks more like we're uh, slaves to these Egyptians than we are uh, free and roaming through a land with milk and honey. They were, uh, their taskmasters were very difficult on them. They beat them. They put a workload on them that uh, no man should have to bear in uh, 24 hours in a day. But there comes a time that God miraculously delivers the children of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, Right. And they begin their journey towards this promised land. Finally, after all these years, uh, we are heading towards the promised land. Now, we know that once they got to the promised land, there was a lot of doubt before they entered into it. And that cost them uh, 40 years in the wilderness. And then once that 40 years has ended, they are about to cross over the Jordan and go finally go into this promised land. Right? Now, when I was a child... Um, and I would hear the preacher talk about the promised land in my own childlike mind. And, you know, you picture uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and in my mind, you know, these children of Israel would finally cross over this Jordan River. And they would get into this wonderful land. And they would just go skipping and running through the fields. And it would be so wonderful. We finally made it. We're in the promised land. Well, you Bible readers know that that's not the case, right? When they cross over into the promised land, what do they find? They find exactly what the Lord told them they would find. They find this place inhabited. This was not an uninhabited, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, Garden of Eden 2.0. This was an inhabited land with very wicked men and very strong cities. And the Lord tells them that if you will listen to me and you will do things the way I tell you to do them, then I'll fight for you. All right. God still holds true to that promise today. And Israel crosses over into this promised land. And the first city there that they're facing is one of the greatest cities of the land. And that is the very uh, defensed city of Jericho. Huge walls of Jericho. And again, if anybody's ever read you a Bible story book, you know the account of Jericho. And if I were one of the soldiers in Jericho, I would be thinking... You know, what military strategy do we have to take this city? Well, when word would get to my ear that God's military strategy is we're going to start marching around this thing. 
And we're going to do that for seven days. And on the seventh day, we're going to you know, start shouting and blowing trumpets and all that stuff. And the walls are coming down. I would probably do what Sarah did when she was in the tent, when she heard she was going to have a child in her old, old age. I would probably laugh. It's like, <laughs> that's not how walls come down. But don't you know, as they marched around this city, on that last day when they began to sound those trumpets and to shout, and they heard the rocks of that city begin to crumble and break. The guys in there that think like me probably would have fallen on their face in shame. But they learned a great lesson there at Jericho that if God is fighting for us, then we cannot be defeated. And so they learn a great lesson at Jericho. And so one of the things that the Lord tells them is that when you go into these cities and you drive out the inhabitants, and as I drive out the inhabitants for you, he gives them a very stark warning. He says, you completely drive them out. Don't go in there and just kind of halfway get the job done completely drive them out because he says if you don't completely drive them out and you don't destroy their false gods and you don't break down their altars and you don't do all this and you don't do a full and complete job he says it's going to come back and these are going to be pricks in your eyes and they're going to be thorns in your side and they're going to vex you so as joshua is leading this charge against these inhabitants of the promised land that is one thing that he's thinking about Like when we go in here, we've got to fully and complete this job because that's what our Lord commanded us. And if we are in good favor with the Lord, look at these crumbled walls of Jericho. My goodness, who can stop us? So they probably had a very keen sense of doing things the the Lord's way. Now, what do you think all the other inhabitants of the promised land at this point begin to think? As word begins to spread, like, did you hear what happened to Jericho? You talking about Jericho, the big walls? Have you heard about that? No, I hadn't heard about that. Tell me about it. They did not have dynamite. They did not have any kind of explosives. How did they get the walls down? They walked around them. They shouted and they, they blew the trumpets. And their God delivered the mighty military camp of Jericho into these hands, which they would have considered vagabonds. These roamers, these people that aren't settled, these people who have no home. And so when they begin to hear that, fear begins to pop up into their mind, right? What are we going to do about these Israelites coming this way? They don't look like much, but their God is doing mighty things for them. And so the kings of the inhabitants of the land begin to unite themselves together. There are, there are five kings that get together and say, listen, if we stand any kind of chance against these Israelites, we're going to have to join forces, right? So these, they, they begin to join forces over here and begin to uh, um, um, you know, combine their military. But one of the next great cities in line, and remember, Joshua does not have an iPhone to pull up and say, what's the next great city? What's its name? You know, what is it like? Obviously, they would send scouts out to see. But Joshua, you know, they don't have the knowledge that we have today. And listen, they don't fire Patriot missiles. They don't have machine guns. When you went in there to fight, you had to be a man's man. And you fought hand to hand with blades and shields. Right. 
Well, the next big city coming up on them is called Gibeon. And it's a, the Bible says it's a royal city. It's a great city. It's not some little podunk city like Ai was. And instead of joining with the kings to fight, they come up with this plan to deceive Joshua and the Israelites so they can stay on their good side. And so what happens is this royal city, some of the men of this royal city, they put on raggedy clothes. They go get shoes that have holes in them. They take moldy bread and they go to the camp of the Israelites and they come up to Joshua and the Israelites and say, oh, we're from a faraway country. But we've heard what your God can do and we want to make a treaty with you and we want to be on your side. Now, another sermon for another day is the Bible says that Joshua and the Israelites asked not of the Lord. They should have asked the Lord about what was going on, but they didn't. My, my thought on that is you need to ask of the Lord before you jump off into commitments. Right. Marriage, friends, careers, whatever. You need to ask of the Lord. But they didn't. And so Joshua says, well, certainly, you know, you poor vagabond. Sure, come on. You can be a part of us. We give you our word. We will not harm you. Well, about three days later, guess what Joshua finds out? These men are not from a far country. These men are the next city in line, and now they've deceived us into not fighting with them. Well, Joshua, interestingly enough, I tell you what I would have probably done. I said, ah, contract, null and void. You know, but Joshua has made an oath in the sight of God, and he honors that oath. But he says, we won't destroy you, but you will become... Um, our, our laborers, you're going to be the, the workers of wood and you're going to, you're going to have to be employed under our rule. All right. So that's an honorable thing to do. Well, guess what the five Kings do? Did you hear what Gibeon did? They went over there and they tricked Joshua and now they're on the side of the most powerful people. And so the five Kings say, all right, before we defend our own self, let's go get the city of Gibeon and let's destroy them because they joined forces with the Israelites. And so they go to attack the city of Gibeon and they send men to Joshua and say, listen, you gave us our word, you'd fight for us. And so Joshua says, you're right, and I will. And so Joshua and the men of Israel go to defend the city of Gibeon. You know, sometimes we're, 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 a, little, we're a little too much tooth for tooth, eye for eye nowadays. Right. Joshua really, he didn't have to go do that. These were liars. These were men that deceived him. And these, these were men that tricked him. But his integrity was such. He's like, I'll still keep my word and I'll still defend you. And so they go into this great battle. And I want you to think about what it would have been like to have been on the eve of those battles. Again, today's, a lot of today's battles are shooting missiles miles away. You don't, you're not always right there face to face looking a man in the eye who's got a sharp sword and he wants to run you through with it. On the eve of this battle, you probably sit there and think, you know what, this, this is going to be nasty tomorrow. I'm going to have to cut people and they're going to be trying to cut me. I'm going to see my friends wounded. I may be wounded. I may be killed. And Joshua probably sits there and is thinking, God told us to completely drive them out. I'm going to go in here and I'm going to finish this job because I'm tired of being, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of the unrest. 
I'm tired of the wars. I'm tired of the battles. I'm tired of the conflict. And I don't want them to come around and be pricks in my eyes anymore. I'm going to finish the battle. So they go in here and they begin to fight against these five kings. Now, in those days, when you were in battle, what is one of the most valuable assets you've got when you're fighting a battle? It's daylight. Right? Because when darkness comes, they don't have, you know, all these LED lights and they don't have infrared and thermal imaging. You need daylight to drive out this enemy, right? And so as Joshua begins to fight this battle, a man whose mind is heavy with, with the, with the uh, burden of conflict and the, and the task that they've got set before them, he wants to finish this job, right? And he begins to fight against them. And he fights, and as the day goes on, they continue in battle, and they continue in battle. And if I were Joshua, and I had that task at hand, what I would be doing is I would be fighting, but I would constantly be looking at how much daylight I've got. Because if darkness comes, they can scatter, they can regroup, and I've got to do the same thing tomorrow. I hope you're following me. Have you ever had a task that you really wanted to get done? And what do you do? You watch the clock. Oh, I got so much time. I got to get it done. Got to get it done. Got to get it done. Joshua's watching the sun because that's his clock. And he's got to get this thing completely resolved in order to get these pricks out of his eyes and these thorns out of his side. Now, let me read this to you in Joshua, the 10th chapter. It says, And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Bethoron that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them. Now, if you read in the book of Job, I want you to think about the walls of Jericho for a second. If you read in the book of Job, what Job tells us is that the Lord has hailstones stored up in the treasuries in heaven for the day of battle. Now, I'm not a doomsday prepper. But, you know, I, I, I stock ammunition up because it's getting hard to find. And what if things go bad? I need to have bullets, right? Don't Some of you do it, too. That's right. But we don't ever need to forget that when we're backed into a corner, all God's got to do is open up the sky. Amen. And he can rain down on our enemies right. and empty those treasuries in heaven. And that's exactly what he does here. That's right. And it says... And they died, they were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, listen to this now. He said in the sight of Israel, because his heart is saying this, I need more daylight. I'm tired of the conflict. I'm weary. I'm ready to put this behind me. I need daylight. And this is what happens. He cried and said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Aharon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Y'all see that? This is not a fairy tale, folks. This is a true, actual account that happened in our history. That God's people are fighting against an enemy and in order to completely wipe them out and rid themselves of this conflict, they need daylight. And the only way to get more daylight is for that sun to stop in the sky. And that's exactly what God did. Now, can you imagine Joshua and those people of Israel as Joshua is fighting? Remember, they're not just sitting back pushing buttons and blowing people up. 
They're out there hand to hand fighting and slaying each other. A horrible, tiring scene. And can't you imagine Joshua as he fights, he looks up and says, we got maybe three hours. And he fights a little bit more and he looks up and says, well, we still got three hours. And he keeps fighting. He says, oh, if I just had three more hours, I could do it. I still got three hours. Can you imagine what, the, what Josh, he felt the same thing I bet you that he felt when he heard the walls of Jericho crumble. Because the sun stood still in the sky. And because of it, a great victory was won. Right. Now, hold on to that. In the New Testament, the book of Mark, <clears throat> you read about a man named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is a blind man. In today's time, if you're a blind man, you can go down to the institution of the Institute of the Blind and they will employ you. You can make light bulbs, you can make pens, you make all kinds of janitorial supplies, and you can actually function in society and pretty much be self-sustaining. There's a lot of opportunity for blind people today, but not back then. Back then, if you were blind and if you didn't have somebody to take care of you, you know what you became? A beggar. And all you had was what people gave you. There was no moment where you just sat there in the comfort of all the things that you had. It was a constant begging of, of, of somebody to give you something to sustain you. Bartimaeus wakes up in the morning and he doesn't get to go to his pantry, pull out the bacon and pull out the eggs and go to fry it. Bartimaeus probably sleeps on the streets. And Bartimaeus wakes up and he begins his day. And he begins to beg. Bartimaeus doesn't go down to the, to the bathhouse and bathe because he doesn't know how to get there because he can't see. Bartimaeus is a filthy, malnourished, worthless beggar in the sight of men. Can y'all picture him? Do y'all see the misery that he has in his life? What a terrible way to have to live. One day Bartimaeus is sitting by the wayside and he's begging as he always did. Bartimaeus, the sense that Bartimaeus used was his ears. And Bartimaeus begins to hear uh, somewhat of a ruckus coming down the street. And he obviously can't see what's going on, but he can hear the crowds coming. And he inquires about what the noise is all about. And it says, and they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the wayside, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. All right, can you picture that? Now, Bartimaeus, let's be real and let's be logical about this thing. Bartimaeus obviously has heard about Jesus or he would have never known to do what he does. Bartimaeus has heard of the miraculous power of Jesus Christ and he probably thinks in this day's time and in the situation that I'm in, I will never have the opportunity to meet Jesus. But oh, if I did. What if I did? And so Bartimaeus is sitting there 
eating probably the, the leftovers that somebody didn't want and they gave it to him and he's stinking and he, and he hears the noise and somebody says, you're not going to believe this, Bartimaeus. But Jesus is about to pass right in front of you. Amen. Can you feel it? Your heart? Bartimaeus' heart probably starts pounding and he starts sweating. He doesn't know what Jesus looks like. He doesn't know uh, where in the crowd Jesus is. He doesn't know what Jesus sounds like. His only hope is to start screaming. And that's exactly what he does. And he begins to scream. He says, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And he probably listens. And he doesn't hear anything. So he does again. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. He's thinking my only hope is about to pass before my eyes. And he doesn't care about embarrassing himself and he doesn't care about embarrassing those other people. But he is shouting so loud that people are telling him to hush. Be quiet, Bartimaeus, it says. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. Now, I want you to listen to this next verse. And I want you to think about Joshua. Begging for daylight. And the sun standing still. And it says, Jesus, the son of God, stood still. And commanded him to be called. Now, put yourself in Bartimaeus' shoes. What do you need more than anything at this moment in your life? What does Bartimaeus need? What does he need? He needs that sun to stand still. He needs the S-O-N to stand still and pay attention to this worthless piece of a beggar. And he calls out so much. He doesn't know that Jesus has stood still. But Jesus stands still and it commands him to be called. And they call the blind man, saying unto him, the sweetest thing those, those, that blind man's ears have ever heard. They say, be of good comfort. And rise. Because he calleth for thee. And Bartimaeus probably thinks, what are the odds when I woke up this morning that Jesus was going to pass by me? And what are the odds that he was actually going to stop and hear me? And what are the odds that he would actually call for me? But that's exactly what happens. And he, casting away his garments, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What will thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Joshua needed a great deliverance. But in order for that deliverance to happen, the sun had to stand still. Bartimaeus, likewise, needed a great deliverance. In order for that to happen, the Son of God had to stand still. And that's exactly what happened. Now, how does that apply to us today? How can we apply it to us today? We don't see the sun in the sky stopping so we can finish our day's work or get the grass cut and weed it and everything blown off. We don't see that happening, right? But the Bible says in Hebrews, the first chapter, it says when he it says he being the brightness of his glory and the expression image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat 
S-A-T, down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, folks, I can't say that verse without making this point. If there's not another verse in the Bible that proves to me that God doesn't need my permission or my consent to wash me white as snow, it's that one. Because he purged my sins by himself. He did not make them purgeable. He did not make it possible. He purged them with his sole work. And when he finished it, he sat down. The Bible says this, that he ever liveth as he sits by the right hand of the father. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Where is Christ today? He is still and he's listening to the cries of his people. And sometimes we think there's a lot more important things going on that there's no way that God would listen to us. Right. But I want you to think about as I close I want you to think about the the woman with the issue of blood. Probably one of my favorite accounts in the Bible. The the Bible tells us she'd spent all her money trying to get healed from her issue of blood. She was no, she uh, was uh, not only was she not healed, she was worse off. And not only is she worse off, now she's broke. She's unclean. And according to the Levitical law, she had to separate herself from her family. She could not touch anything without it becoming unclean. Somebody couldn't touch her without becoming unclean. She couldn't sit on that bench without the bench becoming unclean. Her life was in shambles. And she finally gets to the point where she is willing to do what Bartimaeus did and humiliate herself by crawling through the dirt to the Savior in hopes that she could touch the hem of his garment. And as she's making that crawl, guess who walks up? A ruler of the synagogue who also needs Jesus' attention. His name is Jay Iris. He is somebody. She is a nobody. And as she's making her way through the crowd and crawling, can you imagine when she looked up and saw Jay Iris coming up, beating her there, and coming to the Father and saying, please, my little girl is sick at home. I need you. If I were that one with the issue of blood, my countenance would have fallen. I thought, there it goes. I have no hope. He's somebody. I'm a nobody. He's a ruler of the synagogue, and I'm unclean. And the Bible says that she continued making her way, obviously crawling through the dirt and the crowd. The Bible tells us there were so many people there that it was just shoulder to shoulder trying to get to Jesus. But in the midst of all that, she reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. And guess what he does? He stops and stands still. Even though he had something very important going on and a very important person right there that was needing his attention, he stopped and stood still. And brothers and sisters, he's on the right hand of the Father today. And I don't care if the president or whoever in this world needs him. He is there listening for the cries of even his most feeble, pitiful child. And we sing a song that says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow, right? I would like to add to that. Because he listens, I can face tomorrow. Because he stands still, I can face tomorrow. The things and the glory that, that, that Jesus Christ sees and has experienced, I mean, is beyond our imagination. But yet he still stops for blind Bartimaeus. And when he stops and stands still, there are great victories brought. And I hope that you have profited. I hope that is profitable to you and you've benefited from it. But don't ever forget that if the Lord is stopping and standing still to listen to our cries, don't hesitate to cry. Don't hesitate. Thank you for your good attention. Please pray for Brother Tim as he comes.